Well, good morning. It's a blessing to sing of God's grace this morning, to sing the great truths of the Christian faith together. Dustin, thank you for your leadership. Today we start a summer teaching series through the book of Titus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus, chapter 1. The book of Titus is in the New Testament. It's right before the book of Philemon. That's probably not much help. But if you find those books that start with the letter T, Thessalonians, Timothy, you're in the neighborhood of Titus. I brought with me this morning one of my prized possessions. It's a letter, and it's a letter from my dad. It's addressed to me, and it tells the story of an old 22 rifle that he wanted me to have. The gun had belonged to his grandfather, so my great-grandfather. And the gun is pretty meaningful, and the story behind it is actually quite beautiful, if a gun's story can be beautiful. And sometime during my dad's nine-month fight with cancer, he started to give to his kids the family heirlooms and things that were important to him, and with those things came a letter. And I'm his only boy, so he gave me the gun. But more than the gun, what I love is this letter. Actually, I couldn't tell you where the gun is right now, but I can always tell you where this letter is at. It's the only letter that I have for my dad in some ways, other than the memories and the pictures, it's what I have left of him, so it's pretty important to me. I occasionally read it, and I get a little bit emotional each and every time that I do. It gives me a reminder of what was important to him and certainly the heart that he had for me. And I share that as a way of drawing our attention to the importance of a letter. Many of you know the importance of a letter. I mean, have you ever received a love letter? It's a good letter. Or a termination letter. Or an acceptance letter, a welcome letter, a, a collections letter. Maybe a meaningful letter of apology or a letter of appreciation. On and on and on I could go. Lots of letters that we receive. And if a letter is important, which the letters I just named typically are important, what do you do? Well... Of course you read them. And maybe you reread them for clarity. And if it's a love letter, you reread and reread and reread it again and again and again. And as I get into the book of Titus this morning, we know that we read and that we are studying the Word of God. Why would we be giving it so much attention if it were not the Word of God? It is God's Word. But it doesn't come to us on angels' wings. We, we, we didn't excavate some golden scroll that was labeled the word of the Lord. No, Scripture comes to us by normal human means. And, and this particular book of the Bible is a letter. Yes, it is God's word, but its form is that of a first century letter, also called an epistle. 21 of the New Testament's 27 books are Epistles or ancient letters, most of them to newly formed churches or church leaders scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And Titus is what we call a pastoral epistle, which is a group of three letters Paul wrote toward the end of his life, this one around 64 AD. Only 2 Timothy was written after the book of Titus in terms of the letters that Paul penned. So let's read the opening lines of this letter together. Titus chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 4. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake 
of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time that manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. A couple things to point out regarding what we just read. First, you may have noticed that these verses comprise one long run-on sentence. Did you notice that? Paul has a way of piling thoughts on top of thoughts on top of thoughts, and that's exactly what he has done here. Greek writing didn't have a tool like the parentheses. The parentheses, something that could block explanatory thoughts off from the structure of a sentence. So a lot of times, ideas just get stacked on top of one another. Paul's good at that, or depending on your perspective, Paul's really bad about that if you've read through the epistles. And the second thing to point out is that this is the second longest greeting in all of Paul's 13 letters. Only Romans has a longer greeting. And depending on how you count the words, maybe Galatians is longer. But for a compact letter like Titus, which is just 46 verses, Paul gives us an extremely long greeting. And I don't want to call it clumsy because it's God's inspired word, but it's sort of clumsy as you, as you read through, particularly verses 2 and 3. And so I'm going to break this one <clears throat> long sentence greeting into two parts this morning. So from the first part, we'll look at Paul's position and Paul's passion. And then in the second part, we'll look at Titus's prominence and then our Savior's provision. Let's dive into part one, Paul's position. Verse one begins with the name Paul. It's almost universally held that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, a very small number of liberal scholars try to say that it was written by some of Paul's disciples after his death, but the evidence for that is very, very thin. But it begins with the name Paul, and that's consistent with how ancient letters were written. Today, letters will start with who you are addressing, right? Dear so-and-so. Dear so-and-so. That's how we start letters in our, in our current world. Dear, dear Melvin perhaps. Dear Sarah, perhaps. In the first century, they started with who was addressing you, which that format really makes sense because you don't have to read the whole letter to find out who it's from. It's sort of laid out before you in the first paragraph. So the book starts with the name of Paul because it's from Paul, and it's important to stick with Pauline authorship because so much of this greeting and this whole letter is rooted in Paul's apostleship. One of the primary purposes of this letter is Paul delegating his apostolic authority to Titus. Titus had very important work to do, so an empowering, endorsing letter from Paul the Apostle would help him do that work. And I'm not going to do a biographical sketch on Paul, but I will say, apart from Jesus Christ, Paul is probably the most important historical figure in the New Testament which actually makes him one of the most important people in the history of the world. And as you know, Paul was a Jew. He was a trained Pharisee, which was a strict movement in first century Judaism. The word itself, Pharisee, it means separated. That's what the Pharisees prided themselves in, a kind of self-righteousness that separated them from the broader culture. Saul of Tarsus, he knew the law of God impeccably, 
And it was his life's mission to keep it. He loved his religion. He despised the gospel. He hated the church. He hated Christians. Even murdered them. But then Jesus showed up, blinded Saul, knocked him on his back, and on the Damascus road, Saul becomes a Christian. By God's sovereign work of grace, this Pharisee becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus. And this, of course, changes everything about the man. So he goes from murdering Christians to being a Christian, from despising the Gentiles to being sent as an apostle to the Gentiles, from hating this thing called the church to planting churches all over the Roman world. These are, these are big changes. But look again at how, how Paul describes himself. There are two titles or positions in this greeting. First, he calls himself a servant or a bond servant of God. And you remember from your study of the Old Testament that there were two types of, of servants or slaves in Israel. There were temporary slaves, which meant after a set period of time, they were to be set free. So it might be at the end of their payment of a debt or at the end of a seven-year Sabbath cycle or it might be in a jubilee year. Servants were not to be you know, permanently kept in the status of a slave. This is just one of the judicial things offered through God's law. But at the same time, there was also a provision for a slave who permanently committed himself to his master. And that slave was called a bondservant. And by his own initiation and volition, this servant could say to his master, I'm committed to your service. I want to serve you always. And that's how Paul is beginning this letter, by saying, that's the kind of servant I am. I am a doulos. I am a bondservant of God. A man willingly self-committed to serving God permanently. And I should also point out, nowhere else in all of Paul's other letters does he refer to himself as a servant of God. He does elsewhere call himself a, a servant of Christ, but only here does he call himself a servant of God, which forces us to think about why. Why the unique description of his slave status here in the book of Titus? Again, I think there's a clear, a clear reason. In the Old Testament, slave of God is used to designate some very special people. How special? Well, how about Abraham? Servant or slave of God is a title given to Abraham in Psalm 105. Then Moses, David, Elijah, Daniel... All of them called servants of God. So while servants of God is a humble designation, it's also a distinguished title, a title that Paul is using intentionally to address the fact that just as these Old Testament saints and prophets, these servants of God, just as they spoke for the Lord, so I speak for the Lord. The other title Paul gives himself to sort of double down on this is in verse 1 when he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says this to point out that he did not call himself into the ministry. No, he was sent by Christ into the ministry. That's what apostle means. It means sent one or messenger. He's a messenger of Jesus Christ. And this, this is rooted in Paul's conversion. Again, Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to persecute and kill Christians. And there he is met by the Lord Jesus. And after dramatically changing Paul's heart, Jesus calls him into service. 
And so the Apostle Paul will remind Christians that he was not called into the ministry by a fellow apostle. He did not learn the gospel from a fellow or, or another man. He learned the gospel and was called into ministry by the risen and ascended Christ. And so when Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, that means he has been vested with the very authority of Christ. That means he's a messenger of Jesus Christ, that he's been given the ability to speak on Christ's behalf to his people. That's the point of this second designation. It comes right out of his own experience with God's grace. And again, it is humble, but it's also very intentional. He has a sense of mission, Paul does. He knows what he's here for. He knows his purpose in life, which is to be a slave of God and an emissary of Jesus Christ. And he is gladly, willingly, wholeheartedly, and permanently committed to that purpose. Which brings us to the second point, Paul's passion. The bulk of the sermon is going to be spent here on this point because the bulk of Paul's greeting is spent here, spent giving us what Philip Towner, Bible scholar, what he calls a long interpretation of his apostolate. What Paul lays out in these next two and a half verses, this is his job description as an apostle. These verses explain why Paul does what he does in his ministry. These are his passions. We see several feature Several features explained in verses 1 through 3. First, Paul's passion is for God's people. For the faith of God's elect, he writes. And what this means is the purpose for Paul's slavery to God, for his apostolic mission, is to bring the elect to saving faith. Now, some of you really like the appearance of that word elect here in verse 1, and you can't really wait to hear what I have to say about it. Others of you really don't like the word elect, and maybe you get a little anxious when it shows up in Scripture. And some of you haven't really thought much about this word, and you're not sure uh, what I'm trying to make light of. But let me first point out what's being talked about when we see the word elect in Scripture. And I'll do it first by reading the way the New American Standard translates this verse. It says, For the faith of those chosen of God. So when we talk about election, we are talking about those whom God has chosen to be saved through faith in his son, our Lord Jesus. And some of you are saying, well, I don't believe in election. And I understand that response. The problem is, if you, if you read the Bible, you have to believe in some version of election. You have to define the term, not ignore the term, because the word elect or election shows up throughout all of Scripture. So everybody needs to have a view of election. You can't be agnostic about it. The question is, what view do you have? There are two basic views of election. The first is what is called foresight election. And this view holds that God elects people to be saved on the basis of their foreseen faith. There's a great number of evangelicals, both consciously and unconsciously, who hold to this concept of election. That God looked down the corridor of time and in his foreknowledge saw who would accept Christ and then elected them to salvation. So in this view, faith precedes election. It's a very popular view. I have friends who hold to some form of this view of election. The other prominent view is unconditional election. 
It's the view that says God in eternity past, he chose people for salvation. There was nothing inherently better or special about these people that caused God to choose them. Not at all. It was just in his, in his, in his sovereign grace, he chose them and he did so unconditionally. Therefore, God was totally free in his decision to show grace and mercy to elect sinners who deserved nothing but his wrath. And in this view, election precedes faith. And in my mind, this second view is the biblical view of election. And some of you may be asking, Jay, are you saying that people who come to salvation are saved because God chose them to be saved? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I'm saying that. But more importantly... I think the Bible is saying that. I'm just echoing what the Bible teaches. It's all through Scripture. Look at John's Gospel. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father has given me will come to me. All that the Father has given me will come to me. A few verses later, in verse 44, he says, No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. The word for draw is literally drags. You come to saving faith by the overpowering work of the Spirit, doing the will of God the Father. That pattern follows in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, when when Paul and Barnabas are are speaking boldly in Antioch, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, this gospel that they were preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You come to Romans, of course. You find the very same thing in Romans. Romans chapter 9. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. You move further in, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to the adoption of sons. The Apostle Peter, he's on board with this. In chapter 1, verse 1 of of his first epistle, 1 Peter, he's addressing his audience. He says, to those who are chosen, our names, Revelation says, were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So if you're saved, it's because you were, by God's grace, Chosen, And we're going to see a little bit more about that as we study further into this book of Titus. And this is not a hobby horse issue for us at Faith Bible Church. This is not something that we want to preach on and teach on all the time and read into every text. But we do know that when we come to it in Scripture, we serve you best by not glossing over it, not running past it or ignoring it, but addressing it. And so I hope you feel, when you think about being chosen by God's grace, I hope you feel not a a sense of arrogance or superiority in any way, but an overwhelming sense of humility. This is an unraveling doctrine. This is not a prideful doctrine. This is not a doctrine that gives you or me glory. It is a doctrine that gives God glory, which is a characteristic of all true doctrine. But note here, note what is highlighted Note that the divine choice made in eternity past is activated in time by personal faith. The chosen, the elect, they are not saved apart from faith. They are not chosen and left to wander as if they don't even know about it, as if they're not even following Jesus. No, the elect, they have faith. Paul is saying they are chosen of God and I have been sent as an apostle for the activation of their faith. They can't be saved without personal faith. By grace you are saved, says Ephesians 2, 8, 
through faith. So Paul says, I know my mission. My mission is to give the elect the opportunity to hear the saving gospel so that they can believe and be redeemed. That's my passion. That's my purpose. And Paul knew that it wasn't up to him. He knew that it wasn't his cleverness that converted people. It wasn't his style that converted people. It wasn't the depth of his own ability to reason and preach that converted a people. He knew it was the simple gospel. And when its truth hit the heart of the elect, they would be converted. I love the ancient theologian Augustine. Augustine says concerning these ideas, he says, God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. Not because we believe, but that we may believe. Back in 2 Timothy, if you just go you know, one page to the left there, maybe two, 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says that he's willing In verse 9, he's willing to suffer hardship, even imprisonment. He says, I'll suffer anything for this reason. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Why? In order that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. I'll do anything to get the elect saved. But not just saved. His passion is also for their knowledge of the truth. It's not enough to have salvation. We must have a knowledge of the truth. The word for knowledge there isn't the base word of no, for knowledge, which is gnosis. There's actually a prefix attached to it. The prefix is epi, so epigenosis, which points to thorough, complete, full knowledge. The work Paul is burdened for as an apostle is not to see people merely know a little bit, but to see them have a thorough knowledge of Christ and his word. That's what we want here at Faith Bible as well. We don't, we, don't, we don't want you just having sort of the minimum understanding. We want you to know. We want you to epigenosis, have the knowledge of the truth. Warren Wiersbe said that local churches ought to be Bible schools, and he's exactly right. People have to be learning the Bible if they're going to be growing in the truth. But knowledge, you see here, knowledge isn't the end game. It's not the ultimate goal. It's important. But even more important than that, in Paul's mind, is the result of knowledge. That knowledge is to accord with godliness. Paul's saying, I don't simply want them to have more information than other people, or appear smarter than other people. I'm not interested in knowing certain facts that other people don't know. The point is for them to grasp the truth so it will transform their lives, so that they will be godly. It is a truth that is unto godliness. This is not the last time in the book that Paul will explain the connection between sound theology and godly living. Repeatedly, he will return to the the theme of good works. It's one of the great burdens of this letter. That's why we've titled our sermon series, R&R. R&R is not just a, a play on words with, you know, this being a summer series and rest and relaxation being what we usually connect with R&R or with, uh, with Mark's uh, Sabbath, 11-week you know, uh, sabbatical where he's getting some much-needed R&R. R&R stands for rooted and ready, rooted in the gospel, ready for good works. To live lives that, are adorn, that adorn the gospel by, by godly living, we have to be rooted in the gospel. We have to understand the great truths of Scripture. Godliness is the yardstick of the truth, one commentator said. 
And he's right. As you increase in knowledge, you increase in godliness. If, so, if not, something is desperately wrong, probably wrong with your knowledge. And what that sets up is some teaching that Paul gives to the false teachers that are there in Crete. And then as you go through verse 2, you see the energizing cause that Paul has, that, he, that he's committed to himself to. It's the hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life is the basic incentive for Paul's ministry as an apostle. It's hard to imagine anything more significant than eternity. Paul ministers as an apostle in hope of eternal life. And this hope for Paul is not speculative. This hope is certain. And as Christians, this is our hope as well. If we have trusted in Christ, we possess eternal life. And that's because eternal life, according to this text, text, is not just a place, it is a person, it is Jesus Christ. It's as Colossians tells us, when Christ, who is our life, appeared, he saved us. Christ, who is our life. Paul also says in the introduction to Philippians, for to live is Christ and to die is gain, because to die is to be more with Christ. Because that's where our life is found. Our Christian hope is unique. It's unlike every little flimsy hope in life. We hope for better health. We hope for a bigger salary. We hope for more direction. We hope for our kids to act a certain way or our spouse to respond in a certain manner. We have all these little hopes that we think if they become realized, we will finally be happy. Christian hope isn't like that. It's not speculative. It's not some wish dream. Our hope is certain and assured. We have a secure salvation, decreed by the free grace of God, accomplished by the work of the Son, and sealed by the power of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. And this, this hope is genuine because, as this text tells us, it's rooted in God's promises. God promised it. It is based on the character of God who cannot lie. You want to know something God cannot do? Lie. Our hope is founded on the absolute reliability of God. Interesting, why did Paul point out that our God never lies? We don't really see this phraseology anywhere else in his letters. Well, we'll talk about Crete more next week, but in Crete, lying was a thoroughly accepted practice. Verse 12 says it very plainly, Cretans are liars. <laughs> Cretizo is the Greek word which means to lie. In fact, Zeus, Zeus is the greatest god in Greek mythology. It, it, is, it is said, or at least the Cretans said, that Zeus was born on their island. And, and, one of the, and I don't know how they reconcile the fact that their God was born, which is you know, a whole other sort of uh, apologetic issue. But anyway, one of the chief legends concerning Zeus was his ability to deceive. Lying is a culturally accepted practice in their midst. It's rooted in who they worship. Our God is not like that. 
He has made promises and he will keep them. He made this one before time began, which means in eternity past, he established your eternal life. That's how secure the promise is. He then revealed these promises in his word. He has delivered on them through the person and work of Christ. He sent us his spirit and he has entrusted Paul to preach, to proclaim that hopeful message of salvation. And that's Paul's final passion. It's preaching. The command of God was given to Paul to, pro- to, to preach the fulfilled promises in Christ. And Paul did just exactly that. Paul's legacy in preaching reminded me of another preacher who many of us admire, Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said of preaching, he said, They will never keep me from speaking about Jesus. Not now, not ever. After I die, they will speak about me speaking about Jesus. And we do. I have volumes of Spurgeon's preaching that I love to reference and quote and look upon. And we do that with Paul. Paul's preaching endured centuries and centuries and centuries. We speak about him speaking about Jesus. Hopefully that will be said of us, our friends, our family. They will speak about us and us speaking continually and consistently and faithfully about Jesus. Part two. Let's quickly go through part two. And I really will go quickly. We start with Titus's prominence. The recipient of this letter is Titus. Titus was a Greek, so he was a Gentile. He was born in Antioch. And by the status given to him, we learn two other things about him. He was Paul's true child, which means he was a convert of Paul's ministry. He was one of the elect who exercised faith in Christ through the preaching of Paul. But I think there's a deeper endearment that exists between Paul and Titus. There's a long-standing and loving relationship. Titus had been with Paul since the apostles' early ministry. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas. This is before Paul's first missionary journey on a, on a, uh, a ministry of mercy to the Jerusalem church. Titus was also Paul's special representative to the Corinthian church. Titus carried what was called Paul's severe letter from Ephesus to Corinth. Titus was, in addition, the leader of a group of men who Paul sent to the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And he sent them there to pick up a collection for the poor saints there in Jerusalem. So he was a trustworthy courier of not just letters, but also currency for money as well. And I think with Paul leaving Titus in Crete, I think we can say that Titus was sort of Paul's troubleshooter. Paul doesn't hesitate to send Titus into really difficult situations. You need money collected from the poorest congregations in the early church, those churches in Macedonia, send Titus. Trouble in Corinth, Corinth is an awful church, immorality and divisions and infighting and you know, just rampant sexual sin, send Titus. Crete, that's an awful place. Piracy and backstabbing people, dishonesty, just a really rugged terrain. Send Titus. It's interesting, a lot of the same kind of instruction is in Titus that is in the other pastoral epistles. But in Paul's letters to Timothy, the tone is very different. You read First and Second Timothy and you see Paul telling Timothy things like, Take heart. 
He tells Timothy to be bold, to not be ashamed, to flee youthful passions, to not let anyone look down on him because he's young, to, when he feels ill, to take a little wine for his stomach. Paul doesn't encourage Titus in any of those ways. Titus doesn't get that kind of direction. And I point that out to say, you get the impression that Titus was just a little stouter, a little stronger, a little less prone to discouragement, a little less vulnerable to sinful influence than maybe Timothy was. Now, I'm not saying that Titus is a better pastor than Timothy. God uses all kinds of people for his purposes. Timothy may have been Paul's closest friend and finest protege in ministry, but Titus is Paul's right-hand man. Titus is his dutiful soldier. And subsequently, he would minister widely with Paul. The second thing that we see in this closing portion of the greeting is that the two shared a common faith. This means the faith that he just described in verses 1, 2, and 3, he and Titus share it in common. It belonged to both of them. It belonged to Paul, a Jew steeped in the law, and it belonged to Titus, a Greek with a pagan upbringing. These two share a common faith. And how important is that for people in the first century church to see and to understand? It is huge. Christianity ran the risk of just being some odd Jewish sect. But because of Paul being an apostle to the Gentiles, because he brought those two literally worlds together in the assembly of the church, it became a worldwide movement that spreads out even today. They had a common faith. This is huge for us as well. What binds us together as a church should not be socioeconomic status. Should not be a common political party affiliation. Should not be a common race or a common stage in life or a common taste in music. What binds us together is our common faith. That we are the elect of God, called out by his grace, hoping together for eternal life. We don't have common preferences. Who cares about those? We have a common faith that we need to cling to. So the receiver of this letter is a true child in a common faith. And he's given additional status as he delegates, as Paul delegates his apostolic authority to Titus to get accomplished the work that needs to be done there on Crete. Let's finish with our Savior's provision. To close this greeting, Paul references Christ as our Savior. And interestingly, only in this letter to Titus does Paul refer to Christ as Savior. In fact, the term Savior is used six times in this short letter. That's more than all of Paul's other letters combined. And the salvation put forth in this letter is one of grace from Christ our Savior. Let me just return to that little prepositional phrase. It is of grace. Don't fly by that. It's not a salvation to be achieved. It's not one program, program of salvation for Jews and then a different program for the Gentiles. It's not to be earned or accomplished by our efforts. None of those methods will result in peace. It is a salvation that is received, and it is received by God's grace. We are all trophies of that grace here this morning. And that grace results in our faith in Christ 
and we look to him as our sure and satisfying Savior. Let me just say, if you lack peace today, if you lack peace, you need to look to the grace of Christ our Savior. If you lack peace because you are unsure of what eternal life means for you, throw yourself down at the goodness of God and look to the grace which he supplies through the work of Christ on your behalf. Look to that today. Be assured of your eternity by putting your faith in Christ. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that today. You can do it where you're sitting. You can do it on your ride home. You can reference the person that maybe brought you in this room this morning. But seek the peace that comes from God through his grace, which results in eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would all do that this morning. That we would all be seeking Jesus in such a way that grace upon grace is evident in our life. That peace that surpasses all understanding would exist in our hearts. And that just a confident assurance that our hope is sure. That we don't have to doubt or wonder. But we can know what our eternity holds for us. Lord, I pray that we would lay hold of eternal life that is in Christ. That as a body of people here, we would uh, just be fixated upon the person and work of your Son. And in doing that, we would be bringing you glory as we gather. We would be bringing you glory as we scatter from this place. God, we thank you for this time together and this time in your word. Continue to encourage us as we leave here. Give us a burden to encourage others as well. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Go ahead and stand for the benediction. I'll close with the words that Paul uses at the closing of his greeting here. Grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Go in his peace this morning. You're dismissed.